Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I'm Elizabeth McNulty, and today I am joined by Liz Lenovey, Erica Slater, Megan Crow, and Mary Simon. So I want to discuss another important step in a lot of our cases, which is getting experts excluded from testifying in our cases and making sure our experts don't get excluded. The mechanism for this, as most lawyers will know, at least most trial lawyers should know, is called usually a Daubert motion named after the Supreme Court case Daubert v. Merrill Dow Pharmaceuticals where the Supreme Court kind of outlines the standard for the admissibility of expert testimony in federal courts. You know, this came up to talk about this week because I was lucky enough to spend the majority of my week drafting Daubert motions in a product case in federal court. So I thought it would be a good opportunity to discuss what a vital role Daubert motions can play in litigation and how those rulings can really make or break your case. I can't tell if you're being sarcastic or not. Did you enjoy your week writing Daubert motions? Mm, they're not my favorite thing to do, but I think that it can be interesting depending on what you're trying to exclude, just because a lot of, especially in products cases, a lot of experts really aren't qualified to do what they're trying to do. So I think that those are kind of easy motions to draft. So just to kind of give some background, what the actual rule is and where it comes from, the line of cases is known as the Daubert Trilogy. So the first one came down in 1993, so quite a bit ago, Daubert v. Merrill Dow, like I said. And it held that the Federal Rule of Evidence 702 that covers expert witnesses, the rule incorporated a flexible reliability standard instead of what was previously known as the Fry standard, which is what was required in federal courts before Daubert. Then in 1997, there was a General Electric v. Joyner case, which held that expert testimony may be excluded when there are gaps between the evidence relied on by an expert and that person's conclusion. And then they also decided that an abusive discretion standard of review would be the proper standard when deciding whether or not expert testimony should be admitted. And then finally, the third case in the Daubert trilogy is going to be Kumo Tire Co. v. Carmichael came down in 1999, which held that the judge's gatekeeping function identified in Daubert applies to all expert testimony, including that which is non-scientific. So the federal rule of evidence 702 ended up codifying the Daubert standard and it's basically saying that persons that are qualified as experts based on knowledge, skill, experience, training, or education are permitted to offer expert opinion testimony if the following conditions have been met. And there are four of them. I'll go through them briefly. First, the expert scientific, technical, or other specialized knowledge will help the trier of fact to understand the evidence or to determine a fact and issue. Second, the testimony is based on sufficient facts or data. Third, the testimony is the product of reliable principles and methods. And fourth, the expert has reliably applied the principles and methods to the facts of the case. So in this, the court is supposed to act as a gatekeeper to make sure not just any opinion can be told to the jury because the court recognizes that jurors give so much more weight to expert testimony, and that's why they need to have a role as a gatekeeper. But this should not take over the role of the jury and the court shouldn't become the fact finder, ideally. Unfortunately, I think, especially on the plaintiff side, we see this sometimes where the court determines, kind of makes rulings where 
they become the fact finder and disagree with an expert's opinions. And that's not really the goal under federal rule of evidence 702. And so all federal courts, all cases that you have in federal court are going to be governed by the Daubert standard. And then each state also has its own rule of evidence. Many have codified rule of evidence 702. So they also use Daubert in many states, including Missouri, which is that statute is going to be Missouri Revised Statute 490.065. If you practice in Missouri, a lot of other states have obviously used Daubert, but some still use the old Fry standard. So challenges that can be made under Daubert, it can be made in many forms. You can file separate Daubert motions. Sometimes it might be part of a motion for summary judgment. A lot of the times it's just going to be its own motion in limine. So be heard at a pretrial conference. I think that we see this mostly in state court or it might be in the form of a motion to strike. The way this works is you can seek to exclude certain opinions that an expert might hold or you can try to exclude the expert as a whole, which is obviously going to be a little bit more difficult depending on whether they meet the Daubert factors or not. You can use Daubert motions to challenge the expert's qualifications, the methods that they're using, or the science that they're relying on. So first, I want to talk about excluding the other side's experts. And this is something that needs to be considered as soon as the expert is disclosed and in federal court, as soon as the report is received. And just to touch briefly on expert reports, in federal court, they are required under Rule of Civil Procedure 26. And there's several things that need to be included in these reports, including all of the experts' opinions and the basis for those opinions, all the facts and data that they're considering and forming those opinions, exhibits that they're using to support or summarize their opinions, their qualifications, their testimonial history, and compensation for the case. They need to be very detailed in order to kind of pass muster under FRCP 26. It should include, you know, the parties, the incident at issue, the injuries, the materials that were reviewed, and things like that. And I think good reports will include any defenses if you're on the plaintiff side, and then also kind of going on offense and going ahead and defending their opinions of any likely criticisms. I think that we've all seen some pretty bad reports that certainly don't hold up, even in state court. And I think you can also really tell when the attorney is the one writing the report. And that's always fairly interesting when it comes to time for their deposition. Another thing that you need to do when determining if you can exclude an expert and kind of making sure that your motion is beefed up is go through the scientific literature in the area that you're in to get a feel for the methods used in that field and be sure to review the experts' published works, including those in their CV and those outside of their CV. Since the standards for peer-reviewed literature is so high, often you might find some conflicting evidence within their own writings, which is always super helpful and will certainly help as evidence in your motion. So I know a lot of us here do a lot of MedMal and Something that I think you don't deal a whole lot with is excluding experts in med mal cases. Is that what you see in med mal? I think that's been my experience, but I've had a few motions to exclude experts in med mal cases. So anyone have experience in that? It's so hard with these rules that are pretty dense and have all these 
you know, different subparts that you have to meet and same with the other side. And so really what it comes down to is you got to make sure your expert's not going to get disqualified or barred from testifying in your case. And on our side of the case, we're trying to say the exact opposite, that their experts aren't qualified in whatever capacity to give the opinions they're giving. And I have dealt with responding to Daubert motions, I think maybe just a handful of times. And I haven't personally filed too many Daubert motions, but most of the time in the cases where I know it's pretty clear cut if their expert isn't qualified under Daubert, sometimes I don't want the expert excluded. I've worked in cases before where I've actually drafted a Daubert motion and just kind of held it and waited to decide whether or not I wanted to file it because sometimes if their expert truly isn't qualified and you're finding all those missteps and their lack of experience and training and they're not using reliable methods, sometimes that's great (laughs) to use at trial. (laughs) So it's almost, yes, is there a rule break here, so to speak, in terms of the Daubert standard? And the next step is strategically, what do I want to do about it? So on our side of the case, when we're trying to exclude their experts, those are kind of the two steps that I think about is actually following the rule. Are they qualified? Is the answer yes or no? And if it's no, then do I want to file the motion and argue to try to get them excluded? Or is it actually going to benefit me in their cross-examination at trial because they are so unqualified? On the flip side, I want to make sure my expert's not in that position that (laughs) that I just explained. And the only time I remember actually getting to a point where the motion against one of my experts was argued, I just kind of broke the rule into each category in my briefing, in my response, and went through all of the qualifications. You know, every single thing you have to hit with an expert, I just briefed each point. And it worked out well that way because I think the hardest thing you can do is muddle that for a judge. If you say, here's the rule here's what you need. Here's how I met each of these. I think it makes it a lot cleaner. But largely my experience in, as you pointed out, in medical malpractice cases, I have been on the side where I either know that their expert's qualified or know that their expert is not qualified. And then I decide, is it really going to benefit me the most if this expert's out of the case or do I want you know, him or her in it. I've had that same experience. The one time that it really stuck out to me that the expert on the other side was not qualified. I was in my head during the deposition, like, I can't wait to write this Daubert motion. This is going to be so good because he was so obviously unqualified. And then talking to another attorney afterwards and we were like, actually, you know, Why don't we make him look like a fool at trial when he clearly doesn't know his stuff? So I have a lot of medical malpractice cases, but I also have a lot of trucking cases and catastrophic motor vehicle accidents. And I seem to always win the same Daubert motion. (laughs) And when I see an expert in these types of cases giving this opinion, I'm like, well, yep, I'm going to win that. Here's the setup. In an accident, you'll see a defense theory where the forces of the accident can't cause the injuries that you're claiming. So say you have a 50-year-old woman who has had a prior neck surgery and had some neck pain before, and she gets rear-ended and maybe not a fender bender, but it's not like her, you know, trunk is in her back seat or something. And we're claiming, you know, that she needed a two-level fusion and her neck, have that redone, and then a lower back surgery or something too. 
So the thought is, is that treatment was disproportionate to the force of the accident. And defendants will hire either an accident reconstructionist or, if they're a little bit more savvy, an accident reconstructionist who is also a biomechanical engineer or just a biomechanical engineer to analyze the forces on the body in the accident and then say, you know, that would be no more forceful than someone walking up and down the stairs, or that's no more forceful than someone sitting down hard on a chair or something like that. I file a Daubert motion on that every time because those experts are not medical doctors and cannot testify as to mechanism of injury for medical injuries. And I have won that motion in federal court in front of the, you know, most defense-friendly federal judge if you explain to the judge and teach them the difference between the force opinion and the medical causation opinion, because that's such a nuanced issue, right? Took me a minute and a half even to get to it. And one of the big things about deciding whether to file a Daubert motion or even defending your expert on a Daubert motion is making sure that the judge understands the area or the industry that the expert is testifying on and how your facts apply to what the expert is saying. And that can be really difficult. You might have to pay your expert quite a bit of time to educate you so you are advocating and explaining the expert's industry in a way that the judge understands. So as far as you know, we don't file a ton of Daubert motions on our side. We kind of make the risk versus reward calculation and how we spend our time and what is going to advance the case and be most efficient for the case as opposed to just saying, oh, we can challenge this. It might work. And that's something we see more from the defense side. I'm not saying that they're not meritorious, but I've seen several, especially recently, Liz, in a case we're working on, several challenges to experts, like challenging a life care planner who is a physician writing a life care plan. Like, end of story, everyone. <laughs> like, as long as that person is a life care planner and is a physician, they can write a life care plan. You may say, you know, have at it, cross-examine her, you know, talk about what school she went to or talk about, you know, what you think of her opinion, but save the Daubert motions for issues that are really technically kind of black and white in your mind, you know, like this engineer can't testify to a medical issue, hands down. That's the basis of a Daubert motion. This doctor can't say what she's saying about this medical injury, not a Daubert motion. That's cross-examination. So all too often, my response to a Daubert motion is usually a protracted way of saying that goes to the weight, not the admissibility. And that's really what you have to think about when you're deciding if you even file that motion or in analyzing one filed against you. A couple of thoughts. First is this idea of reliability. Reliability comes up is basically the basis of Daubert, right? We just want to make sure that we're not allowing in junk science, that it's something that jurors can trust and that is something that will actually help the jury reach its ultimate conclusion, you know, decide the facts of the case. I think when you are 
working with experts, especially experts who don't have much legal experience, you need to explain to them what legal reliability means. Because that is something else I've found working with doctors is what medical reliability is. They have an incredibly high percentage chance. Basically, if it's less than 90% effective, it's no good. It's no good. While we're doing you know, civil work, I think about it and we're not allowed to say exact percentages. It's not like it's codified, but we all have a general understanding that 51% and that is more likely true than not true. And that's good enough for a legal case. It's good enough to submit to a jury and get a verdict back. So that's something that we've had to explain to doctors, especially who are greener at doing expert work, that it doesn't need to be a sure thing. It doesn't need to be a lock. And also you need to get rid of anything you understand about criminal work and beyond a reasonable doubt. That's not the standard that we're working with in these medical malpractice or other types of injury cases. So that's one thing that I was thinking about. The other topic that, you know, I said that I've never done a Daubert motion before, but I have done motions to strike. And obviously I cite to the new Missouri law now that we follow Daubert. And the item of those four points that you've made, at least in med mal cases, the issues that I've tried to argue is, does it help the trier of fact? I understand that this person is qualified. I understand that they have reviewed the records and I understand that they have applied their knowledge to the records. But ultimately, is their opinion even helpful for the jury? That very first rule, that very first hurdle you have to get past. And so at least in the last two med mal cases I've been, I've tried both times to argue that a certain opinion, not the entire opinion, but a certain opinion specifically on causation doesn't help the trier of fact because in both of those cases, the defense theory was that, well, we don't know if this negligence caused the injury or not. We're saying it might have, it might not have, no one knows. I don't see how that's helpful personally, but I've lost both of those motions. And obviously, Defendants don't have the same burden as plaintiffs, so we're working under different rules there. If you're a plaintiff, you can't get away with your expert saying, eh, I don't know. Well, I think, and this is my experience, limited as it may be with Daubert motions, I think it's quite a bit easier to oppose a Daubert motion than it is to make a successful Daubert motion for the other side's expert. And I think that's because, at least in my experience in Missouri, there's a pretty relatively low bar for admissibility. And far and away, what your argument, like Erica, what you said, it's going to go to the weight, the credibility, and it's going to be admissible. The jury's still going to hear that. And the jury gets to decide, yeah, it's not so strong. I think the thing that I see the most in med mal cases is, you know, they get two experts to R1 or they get three experts to R1. And so they have three, you know, doctors lined up to all give the same opinion. And, you know, obviously that's cumulative testimony. And, you know, we file motions seeking to exclude that, whether they're successful or not. You know, sometimes you win, sometimes you don't. But that can't be helpful to a jury to hear the same thing eight times in a row. Obviously, if you're on the opposing side and you have an expert saying your theory of the case four times, four different experts, you certainly think that that's helpful to the jury. But I think from our perspective, it's just not necessary and certainly drives up the cost of litigation. I would argue, and I have argued, that it's cumulative. <laughs> Unfortunately, the Missouri Supreme Court disagreed with me, but that's a conversation for a different day. <laughs> <laughs>
one thing to really pay attention to when you're thinking about this issue in your case, especially if you're on the plaintiff side and your experts are often testifying first, is when they are being deposed, he or she needs to kind of say the magic words and make sure that that testimony is in the record, anticipating that you might need to use it to support defending a Daubert motion. So, I mean, I can't tell you how many times on cross-examination, do I have any questions? Like usually, no, I don't have any questions for my own expert. Sometimes I do a quick direct if I want to use that expert in a certain way at trial. But often I will have two questions for the expert. I will say, is all the testimony and opinions you've given today based on your knowledge, skill, experience, training, or education? And I mean, it's just like a recording, right? And so when they say yes, I now have that question and answer on the record. And I say, you know, are all the testimony and opinions you've given today based on a reasonable degree of enter their profession, certainty. So based on a reasonable degree of engineering certainty, based on a reasonable degree of medical certainty. And it's just like checking the box because, you know, often defendants or opposing counsel are not going to, you know, kind of set up all of the technical bases for your expert's opinions. That's up to you to get on the record. But looking down the road, if you are defending an expert on a Daubert motion, I have a couple rules that I kind of learned the hard way. Rule number one is always get your expert involved. And we all know from working with experts, especially when you're interviewing them, if it's someone you're hiring for the first time on a case, you ask them, you know, has your testimony ever been excluded in a case? And by and large, their answer is not that I know of. So there's a little bit of a lack of communication sometimes to experts when their testimony is challenged because it will become a big problem in retrospect if that expert's testimony is excluded in any way, shape, or form, and you didn't involve them in the defense of their opinions. Because that is their professional reputation, and it affects you using them in the future. There's often an option, and again, this is strategic, but the expert providing an affidavit to either explain something about their opinions or explain something about their methodology in arriving at their opinions that might be important to file with the motion. There is no one better to describe how to defend their opinions than your expert. You are not the best person to throw that out. I mean, maybe if it's a super simple issue and you've dealt with it a hundred times, but without a doubt, if you are defending an engineer's opinions or a medical doctor's opinions, you need to talk to them first before you ever start preparing your response because they will be able to guide your argument and give you the best shot at preserving their opinions in the case so that expert is not dinged by a judge not having all the information or not understanding the issue and excluding that expert's opinions. I think that's really good advice, something that maybe I hadn't considered. I'm sure our listeners, some of them probably haven't considered either. I said I learned the hard way. Yeah, that's the worst way to learn lessons. It sure is. (laughs) Definitely helps keep them in your mind. Yeah, probably the most impactful way, though. Yes. (laughs) Very true. And then also the depo quick cross questions. Very useful. If you aren't doing that, I highly suggest it. I was taught that like day one. So if you aren't doing it, maybe you should start doing that before you have to learn that lesson the hard way because that'll be a dark day. One thing that recently has come into my practice, we got a really 
bad report. It's like one and a half pages from an opposing expert. And it wasn't good. It wasn't really giving us what their opinions were. We probably could have excluded this expert based on their report. And the question that came up was, do we even want to depose this guy and give him a chance to clean up this garbage report and kind of like eat his lunch that day? Or do we just want to leave it alone? In a state case or a federal case? It was in federal court. And so the question was, do we depose him or not? We ended up deposing him and it worked out because I think that made him look a little more foolish than even his report did. But it did give him the opportunity to kind of clean up some things and let his lawyer put some words in his mouth. But I'm curious if anyone else has ever confronted a situation like that and decided not to depose the expert. I have, but it's usually been limited to like a doctor who performs a independent medical examination and provides a report. I had an orthopedic expert who saw my client in a case. It just resolved, actually. But they named the expert, produced his IME report, and his fee for deposition was like $2,500 for the first half hour. Oh, my God. And then like $2,000 for any subsequent hour. And If I want to depose him under the Missouri state rules, I pay his deposition fee. And, you know, he gave a report. I understood what his opinions were. I also absolutely expected, you know, he was hired to give an opinion that I expected. So if I don't choose to depose him, and this is a little bit more true in federal court, I would say, they're limited to their report. And what they've said. So any extraneous opinions of, you know, oh, and by the way, you know, I have criticisms of this treating doctor or I have criticisms of your expert in this form that they might just throw into their deposition. They aren't able to do that. So in that case, I decided not to depose that expert. I was pretty sure it might resolve and figured, you know, I could always do so later and spend that money if I needed to. But also it was kind of a routine expert, routine type of report. And, you know, I've crossed that type of expert a hundred times with the same theory. So because of my comfort level with that, I decided not to do it. But I think it can be a really good tactic, especially in a case where, and this is true of our med mal cases, the defense experts are so numerous and you have to really kind of decide where to best spend your time. Another thing to consider in those situations is have you met this expert before? Because that's the other thing I am realizing the longer I practice is you end up seeing the same cast of characters again and again in a lot of these cases. And so there's one expert I'm thinking of right now that I have deposed a number of times. This particular expert produces a report every time, regardless of state or federal, whatever jurisdiction we're in. And the basis of their report is the same. I know exactly where they're getting the information from. Nothing is new. It's the same cross every time. And the more often I see this person come up, the more I'm thinking, I don't need to talk to this person again. I don't need to review this person's report with them again. I know exactly what they're going to say. So that's something else I'm considering going forward is if it's a situation where I've talked to this person, I know what they're going to say. They've given me a report. 
why waste the time? Why waste the client's money? And frankly, why give myself the headache of having to talk to them again? <laughs> Sounds like a smart move, especially at least on the plaintiff's side. Efficiency is key in our cases. Our time is not necessarily money. So, you know, we have to keep things moving. And it's helpful if other attorneys in the office are familiar with the substance of whatever the report's going to be or what they know the deposition's going to be. I've worked on cases before where I've gotten an expert's report. It's pretty thorough. The opinions are in there. If it's the first time I'm working on that particular type of a medical malpractice case, I can send out an email internally in our office and say, has anyone ever dealt with this? And you can even learn a lot about that way, just bouncing ideas off of colleagues because, you know, working with attorneys who are more experienced than I am, I love asking that question because 99.9% of the time in our office, I'll get a response that either they've deposed that expert before or they've dealt with that exact medical issue and can provide a ton of insight in terms of cross-examination at trial that you can just save because you know where that's going to go. So it really comes down to not only you might have deposed that expert before, but Erica, you said this earlier, the substance of this particular area that the expert's going to talk about, you might be familiar enough with it that you're comfortable not taking their deposition. One thing I did want to touch on briefly is actually drafting your Daubert motion, especially when you're looking to exclude the other side's expert. This is something that can be time consuming given the size of the case. I deal with this mostly in products cases. Those are very technical. You have to read through a lot of depots, especially if you don't have your arms around the case yet. Maybe it's been a while. So give yourself plenty of time. And certainly in all cases, especially in federal court, please be aware of the rules that you need to follow. A lot of time, Daubert motion deadlines are included in scheduling orders, and you need to make sure you're following those rules because it's not just a regular pretrial motion. There's most certainly a specific deadline for it, and you don't want it to pass. The one thing that I will add on to that, Elizabeth, is something I've picked up from both John and Amy, which is as soon as you get out of the deposition, if you're thinking about it, if you're thinking I'm going to need to file a motion on this person or whatever, dictate a memo or write down a memo, do it while it's still fresh, do it while you're still amped up from the deposition. And that way you can easily go back and reference your notes and you know exactly what the target issues are. I think writing Daubert motions or even responses to Daubert motions is very time consuming, more so than maybe other types of motions that we do because it is so heavy in the deposition transcript and the testimony. So I find it really helpful to reread that deposition transcript multiple times, highlight exactly what you want. I kind of break up the testimony and write like a full separate note sheet to keep breaking up certain sections of testimony into the different topics that I want to do. I find that's helpful and makes the process go a little bit smoother because if not, you are going to be flipping back and forth a lot. And also another thing about writing Daubert motions is that there is a ton of case law out there on Daubert motions. And so I think spending a little extra time on research and finding that case that's very analogous to your facts, you're most likely going to be able to find something pretty similar and it's going to be super helpful in the end. And also searching your own expert or the expert that you want to exclude. In a recent Daubert motion that Liz and I had in a case, I found an exact trial court order from the Kansas State Court that denied their Daubert motion and gave 27 bullet points about how this particular expert was qualified and her methodology was sufficient and accurate. And I, of course, attached that trial court order. And then like maybe 17 of those 27 bullet points were directly related to 
our case because we're talking about the same expert. And the judge, when ruling on our motion, adopted a lot of the things that showed up in that other judge's trial court order. But I'll add when writing Daubert motions or defending them, keep it so stupid simple. The kiss rule, if you will. And also make sure that when you are responding to the motion or writing the motion, put your best issue up first and make sure it is so easy to understand. I use diagrams. I screenshot or clip out pieces of evidence and use arrows or, you know, whatever. So the judge can just look at it and say, oh, I see it. Don't take a ton of time like getting to your issue or setting up the Daubert standard or, you know, the purpose of Daubert in the beginning. Like just say, judge, this is the issue. This is why we win. And then go ahead and get into your whole legal argument. Because judges, when they're looking at this stuff, so many times you have to educate them about the medicine or the product issue or engineering issue, design issue. And it can be super tedious. And it's hard for us even as attorneys to articulate sometimes. And we know our cases really well. So just make sure you can just hold the judge's hand right through the issue. And I'm a big supporter of don't just refer to an exhibit, clip it into your motion if it makes sense to see it. Don't rely on the judge, you know, going to analyze each exhibit that you're referring to. I think that's solid advice. And then one more thing just on that topic is keep in mind that the Daubert conditions found in the rule, they're meant to be guidelines and they're not supposed to be hard and fast rules. So when you're writing your motion, try not to just focus on one. If you can poke holes in all four of those, you probably have a better shot at getting that opinion or the whole expert excluded. It's not as stringent as just the expert doesn't meet this one criteria, so they need to be excluded. You need to kind of put in as much information as you can to show how the opposing side's experts don't meet any of the conditions if, you know, that's applicable to what's in front of you. So that's going to wrap up our brief overview of Daubert motions. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today and hopefully took away some of our tips. I think that, you know, I even learned some useful things today. So if you have any questions or comments or suggestions, please drop us a line at comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening and hope you join us next Wednesday. Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law and check out other legal podcasts in the Simon Law Firm Library. The Jury is Out with John Simon focuses on lifelong learning to elevate your practice. Subscribe today. Subscribe today.